Thank you, Dominique, for coming uh, on this podcast. It's uh, really great to uh, speak to you in this way. I know we've interacted in a lot of other settings at work. I think there's so much that you have to share with people that I think this will be a great format, and I hope people enjoy our conversations. And I was thinking about when I first may have heard your name or met you, and I believe it was when I was doing a literature review and first came across your dissertation called Managing Nature, Producing Cultures, Inuit Participation, Science, and Policy in Wildlife Governance in the Nunavut Territory, Canada. And immediately I was really excited about it because I was on the hunt for literature about co-management. So it really jumped out at me and it was exciting to read and know that there was somebody in the social sciences that cared about polar bears and was doing that kind of work. I thought maybe it would be interesting if you could tell us about that dissertation and your journey as a student and how it all came about and your experience in Nunavut. I would love to hear more about that. Thanks for the invitation to to share today and That dissertation, if I had to change the title today, I would, because the title is way too long. But in short, what I was uh, interested in learning about 15 years ago now, and something I'm still interested in learning about today and curious about is the way in which knowledge is constructed by people, the way in which it's acquired, the way in which it's shared, and the way in which it shapes our decision and ultimately impacts people's lives and livelihoods. So in the case of this dissertation, I was looking at how Inuit observation, lived knowledge and experiences are mobilized in environmental governance in Nunavut, especially in the context of polar bear co-management. And also in parallel or in, in contrast, looking at how knowledge produced by biologists and natural scientists is being used in decision making and what are the power relationships between the two? How has that evolved? How has that led to collaboration, but sometimes also led to conflict and imbalances? And how has the Nunavut Land Claims Agreement impacted those power dynamics? And what are the promises for co-management in terms of broadening our epistemologic understanding of things? Like, are we today in today's land claims world able to really mobilize multiple ways of knowing equally and equitably when we're making decisions, for instance, setting polar bear harvest quotas, which in turn has an impact on people's lives, what they're able to put on their table for families, on people's uh, actions while on the land, how they harvest is dictated uh, by quotas, where they harvest, how they harvest, etc. That's what I was interested in. And I wrote my thesis 10 years ago, and I know at the time I was fairly critical of polar bear co-management in Canada and, and Nunavut in particular. Like I saw good things in it, but also as an academic social scientist looking at it from the outside, I was a bit critical. Now I work with uh, the Wildlife Research Division of Environment and Climate Change Canada for the federal government. So I'm in the thick of it. I am a part of 
a research program that feeds into decision making. And I realized the world is not perfect, but what we can do is to try to make it better. So I went from the stance of a critical academic to the stance of someone who's just trying to do her best to produce the best available knowledge in the best possible ways in partnership with Inuit for Inuit. So this is my journey in a nutshell. That was quite a turn of events then to go from your position in the dissertation. And one of the things that I did notice in there is that there was a line that talked about how Nunavut largely makes its decisions based on scientific and a bureaucratic framework. And now that you're in that bureaucratic framework from a federal perspective, that must be really interesting and fascinating now as a social scientist and curious what progress you've been able to make and what sort of strategies you think about to uh, make change. Because I know you do really care about the Inuit perspective and voice, and I know you work really hard at it. So what's it like in the bureaucracy to get heard? What I've I've noticed is a a really open and welcoming work environment in the sense of I feel that people are really open to learning and open to learning not just from the natural sciences but from the social sciences and from Inuit experts themselves and oftentimes I find it's a matter of finding the time and space to have these conversations and as a social scientist I feel a responsibility through research to create those spaces. So to organize workshops, to do those interviews that translate into reports that are traveling through the bureaucratic structure and ultimately, hopefully, impact decision-making. So as social scientists, like we're not necessarily, we're a bit imposters. We're, We're not subject matter experts in the sense that I've only seen a couple live polar bears in my lifetime, and I've had the privilege to go hunting once, but I don't consider myself as as an expert on polar bear. But what I've developed expertise in is in creating spaces for experts to share their voices and facilitate that. And so that role I see for social sciences in a space that's a bit aside from politics Our role as social science researcher is more to elicit knowledge. It's to open the floor up for people's voices to flow in a respectful and true manner Um, and not necessarily to make recommendations or make policy recommendations, but rather just to present the evidence base. And that's where sometimes in my role I see attention because My goal is to have people's voices heard, but how far do I go in presenting those and how far do I go in mediating those decision-making spaces? Like I'll give an example. I've been working with one partner, Hunters and Trappers Organization now for the past seven years. And as part of this project, we work together to document the perspectives of hunters polar bear hunters from their community and did interviews and produced a report. And we had it all in writing and we 
presented the results to the community and everybody agreed that this was an accurate representation of what people had shared. And at some point, the hunter and trapper organization I work with, they asked me, okay, then what do we do next? So do we articulate, formulate a policy recommendation? Do we advocate for more quota, for instance? And that's where I I had to kind to draw the line between my role as a researcher and my role as an advocate or as someone who's taking sides. So my reply to the HTO board at the time was like, now, if you wish to articulate a policy position, if you wish to make a recommendation, this is really up to you and, and this will be led by you. What, what I can do is support, but in no way I can endorse because that's where my role as a researcher ends. If I wanted to have a different role, I'd be uh, doing something different professionally. But I find as researchers, we're social science researchers were were committed. I do this job with my heart. And so that's where at times I find there's a tension between wanting to support, but having also to um, walk this fine line between uh, producing an evidence base and advocating for specific management action. I think that's an excellent example of how you have to navigate two worlds there and I think that perspective is not really shared enough in the academic literature. It's often a little bit simplistic, I feel, where it sounds like there's this science community on one side and Inuit on the other side, or the government and Inuit. But there are good people within these systems that are trying to do work within the constraints that they have. And to the extent that there's practical, good advice that we can learn from. I think stories like that are really great to share because there is times where you can help and elicit knowledge, but then there's also times when other people then have to pick up the torch and and come forward with their own voice and share it. And it could be in many different perspectives. I was curious if in those type of relationships, were you able to carry over some of your relationships that you made during your thesis over into your career? I'm sure you've met a lot of people now in Nunavut communities. It must be benefiting you, I would suspect, in your role now in government. For sure. Now I co-supervise students master students and PhD students. And one thought I always share with them at the beginning of their research journey is that they think they're picking a topic, but what they're picking when they choose to pursue a a master or PhD on something, they're picking a network. And those relationships they will develop through their studies, through their project will be precious and will accompany them hopefully for a long time. So In my case, just today, we were at a meeting and I saw someone I have met through my PhD thesis, and I'm thankful for all the knowledge he's since taught me. And it's great to see that some people I started to work with 15 years ago are still there and I'm still there. The connections I've made then are are still very much present today. And I think this emphasizes in everything the importance of relationships. You were talking earlier about 
the role for different sources of knowledge and decision making. And I think at the heart of this is relationships. Sometimes there's tensions, there's disagreement, but when there's mutual respect and trust between researchers or with communities, this can go in a long way in, in agreeing on something or in agreeing to disagree, but respectfully. And in, in my work, I think this is what I cherish the most. Papers are important, but if papers are published with relationships being heard, then I don't think those papers deserve to be published. And that's how I do my work. And I think I always say process matters more than product. So the ethics have to be and have to lie at the core of everything we do. If not, it's I don't think it's worth pursuing. The point you made earlier as well about the, having that opportunity to go on a polar bear hunt can you share that story? I'm really curious to hear all about it. I would suspect you learned a lot from going on that hunt that you couldn't have possibly learned from being in an office or even being in community interviewing people. I would imagine was a lot different than actually getting out there and participating. This polar bear hunt, having the, the privilege to accompany three hunters from Iglulik, Doing a hunt was really a life-changing three days, a life-changing moment that has since accompanied me and how I, I view the, the work I do and, and how I understand, at least try to understand Hunter's perspective from Nunavut. So around 10 years ago, I accompanied, uh, as I said, three, three hunters from Iglulik on a bear hunt and at the time, the regulations were such that males had to be harvested rather than female. It was under a two-to-one sex harvesting ratio. So the hunt I was a part of, hunters had to harvest a male. And what happened? We departed two skidoos with kamotics with a lot of gas. And we started off, it was interesting, as we prepared, I asked the guys I was with, okay, so what food do we bring? How do we prepare for a hunt like this? And all they had brought were their knives, salt, and pepper. And that was it. And maybe dry ramen, but that was it. So that was all there was in the cooler. And so when <laughs> I saw that as a someone from the city, like, I felt, a bit uncomfortable and I was like okay so what does that mean <laughs> and, uh, and they're like we're gonna catch stuff on the way and and we'll feed you don't worry <laughs> <laughs> but I was still a bit worried I have to confess I I, I brought a jar of peanut butter just in case there were no seals or no no fish around but yeah throughout our journey it was not just about bears, it was about stopping and harvesting whatever we came across, seals, fish, and the hunters I was with they were very gracious and gave me the fishtail and gave me the best part of everything and fed me very well and I felt very comfortable. And we had a good lapse as well because when we got to the shack where we were staying for a couple nights, they just handed me over the caribou skins and they were like, make the beds. <laughs> and I was like, do I look like someone who knows how to make the beds? And so I, I put the caribou skin wrong and I did it all wrong. And then they laughed at me and, and showed me the right way to do it, to create the sleeping platform. So 
I learned a ton of things and, and, and laughed. And, and also one day, like we were so ready to get out, but it was a whiteout and there were ice crystals floating into the air. And I was like, why don't we go? Why don't we go? We're ready to go. And they were like, no, this is very dangerous, dangerous conditions to be out. It doesn't look like it, but those are dangerous conditions. So I was like a kid, like learning about those things that are so obvious, but that were new to me. So it was not just me reading about polar bears in a book, but it was just living the life. And that was precious. And another defining moment when we were getting closer to a bear, there were tracks on the snow and all of a sudden the adrenaline rush kicks in and the skidoos start roaming way too fast for my taste. And then we, we stop and we get our binoculars out and the guys were looking and I was the one who spotted first a white dot like in the distance and I was so excited and everyone around me was so excited I could spot a polar bear and so we approached that white that dot and slowly but surely we got closer and closer to the bear and then at some point the elder I was with was holding the binoculars and watching carefully because he was trying to see whether it was a male or female, whether he was allowed to harvest this bear who looked fat and perfect to be harvested. And what he did realize from the far, looking through his binoculars, was that this bear was not a male. It was a big fat female accompanied with cubs. And at that time, I just saw the disappointment on his face because if it was just up to him. That would be the bear he would harvest today because the bear was fat and because it would feed the community well. But because of the regulations that were in place back then in Nunavut, he couldn't harvest that animal. So I could see in that moment the impact that certain regulations can have on people's behavior and lives on the land. And I could felt like how, how sad he was not being able to, to harvest this bear. And that was like a moment that was really important to me because it made me realize and from the heart that regulations do have impact and, and do impact people. And so after he realized he couldn't harvest that bear, then we went on and finally, we found um, a skinnier young male that ended up being the bear that was harvested that day, but none of this was said, but we could all feel that this was a suboptimal hunt, that the other fat female would have tasted much better. And since in Nunavut, I want to specify that because of many Inuit hunters and organizations voicing concerns related to a sex-selective harvest ratio, regulations have changed and so now things are different and had we been on this hunt today the female would have been allowed to be harvested I want to specify this but yeah it was really a really quite a journey and when we went back to town I saw how the hunter went on the public radio just to explain that there was bear meat and fat for everybody to come and enjoy and how the meat was shared and then saw how the hide was prepared and that was a great experience which I think 
anyone involved in making policies and regulations and even doing the science work should have an opportunity to experience at least once in a lifetime. That's a really excellent example of how Inuit knowledge kept you safe. It sounds like it kept you yes. safe out there. <laughs> and also how it was able to influence policy in the sense of having that management measure changed. And I know you're also now one of the main authors and driving forces, I know, behind the most recent wet knowledge study that was done in the Davis Strait. Maybe you could take us through that report a little bit at a high level and share what some of your insights were. So I was part of the team that uh, conducted the Nunavut uh, Davis Strait polar bear Inuit Hawimaitukanit study that started back in 2016. And recently, last year, we released a, a final project report. And that work was really a collaborative effort between um, Environment and Climate Change Canada, between local hunters and trappers organizations, the Mayukalik organization and the Pangutung organization as well in Nunavut, along with the government of Nunavut. So we had on the team polar bear biologists, social scientists, community-based researchers, as well as board members from two local hunters and trappers organizations who all provided project direction and all agreed together at every step of the way on what should be done and when and how and what would be our research questions. I like to think of this work as being truly an example of co-development or knowledge co-production in the sense that on the agenda and on the research process at every step of the way. So I'm based in the city in Montreal. And for this work, Southern Canada-based researchers, I think, traveled seven times up north just to touch base and really learn to navigate the process together. And the main goal of this work was to explore polar bear health, polar bear ecology from an Inuit knowledge perspective, and also consider Inuit perspectives on polar bear management with the ultimate goal of informing decision-making for the Davis Strait polar bear subpopulation. So, for example, informing the establishment of total allowable harvest levels for that population or quotas. And the approach we took um, was really holistic. So oftentimes, and especially when speaking to people trained in, in natural sciences, when you say indigenous knowledge or Inuit knowledge, they will think of ecological observations. So that's true, but it's just one aspect of what indigenous knowledge or Inuit knowledge is about. It's about the ecology, but it's about the cultural practices, the values, the beliefs, etc. So in this work, we didn't want to be reductive. We didn't want to just document observations, but we also wanted to get a sense of people's ethics around polar bear harvest, practices of polar bear harvest, and uh, traditional management systems, if I can use those words. So what are the principles that guide Inuit harvesting, such as 
avoiding waste, such as sharing the catch, such as only harvesting what is needed and showing respect to bears. What does it mean to show respect to bears? And hearing elders and experienced hunters speak about that. And in this work, too, I want to mention that to us, it was important to engage male elders and harvesters as well as females, because in those types of studies, traditionally, I think uh, males have been better represented and the voices of, of women sometimes are not as well represented. So we took good care there of making sure that we engaged with uh, ladies who specialized in polar bear hide processing and cleaning in the communities where we worked. And that was extremely rich in terms of an outcome and the dialogue it could yield. And so what we did, we conducted interviews, participatory mapping exercises, quantitative interviews as well, and to document the various topics or themes that could help us assess polar bear health from an Inuit perspective. Health not just related to the bear, but related to habitat condition, related to pre-availability, considering health in a broad way, not just as the absence of disease, but rather has the conditions that allow a species to thrive. So habitat, prey, etc. And what we found out, in essence, is that Inuit knowledge as a holistic system really includes incredible, in-depth, historical and contemporary observations on so many different themes that are in many ways complementary to Western scientific perspectives and that allow to really developed a thorough understanding of the species. Themes such as abundance and demography, distribution and habitat, diet and prey availability, but a ton of stories and the power of social sciences in this case allows us to combine the voices of many in a cohesive whole, such as in a report or in a publication or in a workshop where many people can share things. And I'm really proud and happy with the work we've accomplished together, not just in the terms of result, but now how far we're able to travel with those results in terms of informing uh, management fora and decision-making at various levels, going from the local to the global. Our results were presented in, in Pangerton and Kimirut and Iqaluit. They were presented to the Nunavut Wildlife Co-Management Board. Some of it was presented last December at the Convention on Biological Diversity meeting. We traveled to ArcticNet last year together with a co-researcher from Pangerton, a young lady there co-presented together with me. And that was a fascinating experience to be able to co-present this together and have someone from the community really speak to the work. One of the things that I think is really great about this report, and I wasn't aware that how much care that you did take as a team to ensure that female perspective was incorporated in that. And in some of the co-management literature, it's certainly documented that there's been very few women appointed to our co-management boards right across Canada. So you mentioned that this data in particular was very rich, and maybe we could chat about that and share 
to different perspective that probably came from those conversations and how it probably influenced this report in a good way, I would suspect. Yeah, certainly I can and share a couple of stories and some of the things we learned from working with uh, women that were extremely skilled at processing and, and preparing polar bear hides. Um, traditionally or typically today in Inuit communities, when a bear is harvested, the hide is kept and processed uh, locally. It's prepared locally. And most often women tend to have this role of preparing the heights. And one of the things we learned working with different uh, focus groups of, of women in both communities is that women over time have very precise knowledge of the quality of the hide they had to work with. For instance, if a bear that was harvested had scars or had little signs of alopecia areas on the skin where there were missing hair, they would notice right away. And not only would they notice today, but they noticed 15 or 20 or 25 years ago when the hides were harvested. So they were able to share observation and knowledge of the evolution of polar bear skin quality over time. And using that as an as a proxy to, to assess polar bear health, because generally if a hide is thick, if a hide is good, if the hair is there, you can infer that likely this bear was healthy. Of course, there are other criterias, other considerations as well, but I think it's robust to say that the observation that hide processors make of the quality of polar bear hides can be used as a proxy to assess the health of that bear. And so that's what we learned. Uh, for instance, women shared this idea that when a bear is skinny, so when it doesn't have a lot of subcutaneous fat, what happens is that it's a bear that's super hard to clean. And so they know because they remember how difficult that process was and how many times they had to sharpen their ulu before being able to, to process the hide properly. And so I think moving forward with monitoring, right now in Northern Canada, there's a system in place in Nunavut where uh, hunters are asked to record different observations from the bears they harvest. I think moving forward, it'd be interesting and important to ask women who specialize in polar bear cleaning as well, what they thought of the quality of the hide. Did they notice anything special? Because something we've learned through the interviews we conducted through this work is that there are increasing sightings, unfortunately, of alopecia and polar bear. So it's just hair loss localized in the neck area, localized on the face and in other parts of the bear. Those observations have been made according to people we've interviewed over the last 15 to 20 years mainly. And they've certainly increased in frequency from the perspective of people who interviewed. So that's definitely something that could be monitored, notably through, through women's observation. Another thing I think women know for sure is that if a hide has a lot of little holes, if, if there are scars, 
in order to be able to export this hide on the international market and in order to get good value for this hide, all those holes and scratches and patches will have to be sewn. And so the time it takes to sew means that the ladies remember. And that I think is really precious. And that has to be shared and spoken about because I think it, it takes communities to really celebrate and perform polar bear harvesting and share with the younger generations, which I think is really an important part of this work as well. Did the women that you spoke to have any particular perspective on the total allowable harvest, like the management of bears? I will say is that I feel a message that emerged strongly from the women we've interviewed is that they felt it was so important for the knowledge they had to be shared with the younger generations. And they felt it was so important that younger generations had an opportunity to learn from their elders and, and pass on that knowledge. And that really came out strongly from especially the women we interviews. And another aspect was this concern for kids' safety, concern for community safety, because as we know, as Many people from communities have voiced there's are increasing concerns related to increase in the frequency of human bear encounters in coastal areas where communities are located. So that came out strongly. Uh, one, one thing that women in particular were advocating for is that management authorities do take action, not just to protect bears, but to protect people as well. One one line that really struck my imagination, someone said during interviews that this person felt that it was not bears who were endangered, it was people who were endangered these days, people that needed protection and reassurance that they could coexist peacefully with Nanook um, now and into the future. That's really interesting. Did anyone in particular that you recall share any close encounters, unfortunately, with bears out on the land? Yeah. Yes. Many, we had many stories of close encounters, including one of a person who woke up with a female polar bear in his boat while he was out hunting. And what he said to us was that at that time, he didn't know what to do but to scream as loud as he could. And he screamed so loud that the bear jumped back into the water. If I ever encounter again a polar bear, I will know what to do from now on. Practice the loudest scream I can. <laughs> Perfect. And the, the other interesting thing that sounds that came from that perspective of the uh, the women that participated and passing on that knowledge to the youth. And you mentioned you had a local community member that was a younger person that participated in the whole process. And I wonder, did she share many reflections on the process and what she might have learned through participating in such an in-depth study? Yes, the feeling I have from conversations I, I had with her was that this was a, a good learning opportunity and uh, an experience that was empowering for her. 
it allowed her to speak in front of an audience of 150 people and then get congratulated after and receiving feedback about the value of her work and then from this opportunity having other opportunities to to learn and work after the project she went back to school and i was happy personally to support her in the way i could through this process and i feel as a social science researcher doing community engaged research what i try to do as much as i can is to offer opportunities for uh, indigenous youth to partake in research activities at a level they're comfortable with and at a level they wish to take part if it's more in a leadership role conducting interviews leading interviews or even sometimes just listening and be there and listen from elders and learn about their stories i've worked with youth occupying different roles and always it's been positive in a way and and it's something i feel that i have a duty to do and something i'm always happy to do and it's not just the youth learning it's me learning from the youth about how to best do research in their home community and it's me learning from them about their story their hometown and and um what they know about polar bear so it's a mutual learning experience and uh, again i think as researchers who don't live in the north it's just our duty to make sure that the benefits of research are first and foremost shared with the community and that can mean hiring as many youth as possible to uh, conduct the work and lead the work and one thing we did as part of this project we hired a few youth and one of them went back to her old high school just to present the work together with an elder and that was a really proud moment for her just showing her peers that since graduation she had done this and was able to speak to that together with an elder so that was a really beautiful moment you know, when you uh, presented this work at the UN biodiversity conference in montreal what was the sort of feedback from delegates at the event the feedback was very positive um, many of them had never seen polar bears so really being able to hear from members of the panel many of which were uh, from the north were indigenous hearing those stories about the unique relationship uh, between inuit and nanook was really a great learning opportunity and at that meeting specifically like i was amazed by the uh, indigenous representation from across the world that was there and the openness i felt at least um through discussions about the value of indigenous knowledge and stewardship practice practices to to support any initiatives moving forward related to biodiversity conservation so i really feel we're at a, we're at a crossroad in terms of this idea of really truly embracing and endorsing indigenous led stewardship and indigenous knowledge at the international level the cbd was signed in 1992 i would believe and back then it was one of the first international convention that really 
mentioned the importance of indigenous knowledge for biodiversity stewardship. And since then, there's been many other declarations and other fora. And I, so I think there's really a momentum being gained. And it's really nice to see this. Like, certainly my career hasn't been that long, but I've seen this evolution in the past 15 years. This idea of weaving knowledge systems now is becoming more mainstream, more common. And so now all we need to do is to, to continue to do it and have more researchers endorse this idea and do it. Because still, last year, there was a, a report produced that showed that this target they have of making sure that indigenous knowledge is mobilized and used in biodiversity conservation, it's still not met. So it's being said in, in practice and in theory, we have to do it. But then if we look at the evidence trail, we're making progress, but we have to be better and do more. And so that's a message I hear loud and clear. And I think just something I will continue to work on uh, along with other colleagues. And hopefully we'll, we'll be making a difference by continuing this important work together with Indigenous partners. And with the Range States meeting coming up this fall, is there a particular message that you hope to share in those meetings? For one, the perspective I hope to bring to this meeting is sharing the message that social sciences have a role to play in, in fostering this dialogue between cultures and between disciplines so that decision-making processes ultimately are more inclusive and respectful of multiple ways of knowing, including Indigenous and Western scientific ways of knowing. Nice. And we've been chatting quite a bit, and uh, there's a lot to digest, and we can probably chat for a lot, lot longer, but I'm curious what you're excited about now going forward. You reflected on being a little bit critical as a grad student, but uh, what are you excited about now uh, in the year ahead? There are many things to be excited about, but in the polar bear research world, a project that I'm, I now have the chance to be contributing to is the Nanook um, Dialogue Project, which is Inuit-led, co-management board-led documentary film series that will present unique stories about the relationship between Nanook and Inuit through participatory videography. And so it's, I think this project is truly innovative. It's beautiful and respectful in the way that it engages community partners at every step of the way. And it's led by co-management board. So as a federal scientist, I, I feel it's a, an honor to be a part of this. And I love watching films and videos, so I look forward to see what comes out of this. And uh, getting aside to be able to use the, to, to share the important perspective and voices that Inuit bring to this uh, important subject, which is polar bear stewardship and, and management. And I think in this day and age, videos are just the, the way to go. <laughs> yeah. I'm really excited about that project also and to see where it all goes. Thank you for this opportunity to share. I have no final comment and I'm grateful and I hope that anyone listening to this will have learned something from my journey. So I'm thankful. Thanks so much. Thank you for Take listening care. to this episode of the Co-Management Commons podcast. We hope to 
See you back again soon and take care.